The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. A failed revolution forces a man to sit in the hot seat. A female demon that haunts the jungles of Central America and South America comes equipped with a one-of-a-kind superpower. And then we take a look at the political belief known as posadism. How far left do you have to be for even Castro to denounce you? Well, saying that you want a nuclear war is a good start. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. It's nice and rainy out here. I kind of like the rain, as long as I'm in sight. But that's it. That's all the intro I got, because we got a lot of stuff to cover today. Now the first story I'm going to talk about is a little grim, but... I don't, I don't, I have this thing that it see. I really am starting to think that most of history is, has been retconned. I'm not liking it. I mean, like, I think the Battle of the Bulge happened and stuff like that. And I think there were key events that happened throughout humanity, but sometimes the stuff that is reported is so ridiculous that you really have to sit back and go, that, that didn't happen. Now, there are some events that actually we know 100% happen. But for this first story, though, that, that I just find absolutely ridiculous. So let's hop in the carpenter copter. First, we've got to make a stop off at the Bermuda Triangle because we're going back in time. So, and now we are also magically transported over Transylvania. Modern day Romania, but back then it had the more badass name Transylvania. And we get there just as things are starting to heat up, pun intended. In 1514, this do the 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 it, to make a long story short because I don't want to get into the history of everything, but there was a papal order, papal order. There was an order from the Pope to stop the Ottomans from just wrecking all this stuff throughout Eastern Europe, and they appointed this dude. Named, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing this wrong because if if I'm pronouncing this right, this guy is does not have a badass name. His name is Georgie Doza, Georgie Doza. So anyways, Easy Doza, okay, I'm sorry about that. Georgie is appointed to raise this army, and he does raise an army, but he doesn't know how to control them. And eventually, he has this huge army, and they go, let's fight for our rights. Let's take back the land that was ours. And all, like, the gentry are like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good. They're like, control your army, control your army. He's like, I'm trying to. There's, like, thousands of these guys. What am I supposed to do? Maybe if you gave me some of that sweet, sweet vampire power you have in Transylvania. And they're like, silence. And so anyways, this army that was meant to stop the Ottoman Empire, to stop the Turks, was just like rampaging. And this went on for a while, and they were basically like killing a bunch of noblemen, and the knights were having to show up and beat up the peasants. And the whole time, Georgie just cannot control this whole mob. It's a mob. So anyways, eventually, the quote-unquote rebellion that wasn't even, that's not even why he started it, was crushed. 
And they tell Georgie, they go, you want to be king? You want to take stuff over? We'll make you king. And he's like, I never wanted, what do you, I never wanted to be king. I was given this order to do this and it just it didn't work out. But anyway, so this is what, that's all, I believe all of that happened. I don't believe that his name is Georgie. I think it was probably a little more badass than that. But anyways, this is what I don't believe. So this is how they kill Georgie. Now I know back in time, they were pretty brutal with their tortures, but Let me explain it to you and then explain why I don't think it's real. They take Georgie and they take a throne and they make it red hot. And then they put him in it. And they're like, you want to be king, right? Sit in this throne. And he's like, ah. And then they make a crown. You know, a crown that you put on your head because I know I have trouble pronouncing that word. They make that red hot and they go, here's your crown, your highness. And he's like, ah. And then they go, you know what a king really needs? He needs a scepter. Go fetch me that hot red scepter, please. (laughs) They just have lying around. Guy's like, yeah, sure. Puts on big mittens. Hands it to Georgie. Oh, now he's holding a red hot scepter, sitting in a red hot throne, wearing a red hot crown. Now, this is all supposedly historical. And you're like, well, that's awful, Jason. That's terrible. But then, according to historians... They then were starving nine dudes. They were prisoners of war that Georgie knew. One of them was his brother. And they bring the nine dudes in. And they go, Georgie, here's your court. Look at your all these people here are to serve the new king. And then they chop his brother up. And Georgie's like, no. And then the remaining eight guys who are starved to death, they are then told to eat Georgie. So they eat him. They begin taking bites out of him. And those that refused got chopped up, so the other dudes are like, well, I'm either getting chopped up or I'm taking a bite out of this guy. So they all walked up and ate some of them, and they were allowed to leave. And Georgie died. That was the end of that. I don't believe that story for for a second. And here's why. Let's say that someone has a spear on you and says, go sit in that hot seat. Go sit in that red hot seat. What are you going to do? You'd be like, no, spear me then, dude. And they would have to, like, fight you, and maybe they're, like, poking you in the butt, and you're like, ah! And they finally throw you on the throne, and you're immediately going to get up. If someone, and and here's the other thing. So, I don't believe that. If you are standing around, if you are surrounded by guards, because obviously they would have to guard you, otherwise you would keep jumping up. There's a bunch of guards around you, and they hand you a red-hot scepter. What's the first thing you're going to do? drop it most likely but if you have any forethought you're going to begin wielding that like a mace and attacking people with a red hot scepter it's already melted to your hand you can't do anything to it it's like someone took a gi joe figure and put it in a microwave it's just one form of mold now your hand in the scepter be swinging it around and you could argue well jason maybe they strapped him down to the throne and then made it red hot what strap can you name that won't melt under red hot heat, other than a chain. And again, even if they chained me to a chair and then handed me a red hot scepter, I'm I'm getting somebody. The guy who hands it to me is getting hit in the head with it. And then getting eaten while you're sitting in a red hot chair. Have you ever tried to eat a hamburger out of a frying pan while it's still cooking? You would melt. I mean, this story's so ridiculous. But apparently this happened. I think they probably took a guy and they got a chair that was red hot and they threw it, threw him on it and he jumped up and he got like third degree burns and then they just stick, stuck him to death with spears. 
and then they made the rest up. Not saying that the historians today are like, hey, Barry, wouldn't this be cool if we'd say that this guy got melted and eaten at the same time? But I think it was probably propaganda back then. And they're like, and then we put a red hot crown on his head and all the revolutionaries were like, oh, I don't want to do that. That sounds like a terrible thing. But I think if you ever tried to recreate that, and I don't recommend doing it, because again, you're going to get hit in the head with a red hot scepter. But I think, I what's bizarre is that when I read about it, no one was like, but that's impossible. That probably didn't happen. A couple different sources are like, yeah, this happened. And I'm like, it didn't. I can understand getting impaled because you could have a couple guys hold you down and a stick stuck up your butt. But the amount of people it would take to hold a man down in a red hot chair, those dudes are getting burnt and there's a big struggle and they're handing you a weapon that is red hot. It's just a bad idea all around. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to leave Romania or hop back in the carpenter copter. We have our heat shields on, so we're not feeling the heat. And again, I don't think that ever happens, so we don't even need the heat shields. We just see a man getting stuck with spears as we fly away. And we have to go forward in time now. We're going 100 years in the future. That story took place in 1500. We're hopping back in the carpenter copter. Now we're going to the 16th century, which actually be the 1700s. So we're going a couple years in the future. I'm new to this whole time travel device on my helicopter. We're going to Colombia. And our helicopter is in stealth mode, and it's a good thing. Because what we see going on beneath us is not a situation we want to be involved in. It was a dark, moonless night. And a slave ship became overrun by their cargo. The slaves, not like sugar. The slaves broke out and attacked the shipmen of the boat, threw them overboard, stabbed them. One guy tried heating up an iron throne. The whole boat caught on fire. But eventually 25 of these slaves bail out on little rowboats or dinghies, whatever they're called, and get off the ship, and they land in Colombia. Now, these slaves believe that they are totally free now. But their freedom doesn't last long, because they end up running into a group of natives, and very quickly, the two groups become hostile towards each other, to the point that a battle breaks out between the slaves and the natives. And this battle is so bloody, you have muskets, Reload, reload, reload. You have knives, ceremonial daggers coming out of sheaths and just digging in the flesh. It blood everywhere. The screams of the dying, the moans of death. It is music to the devil's ears. And while he is underneath the planet, he hears these noises above. And it just gets the blood boiling. He has to see this magnificent battle. So the devil crawls out of the earth, sees these two groups fighting each other, And realizes he needs a piece of this. He then runs into the battle and slaughters both sides. Claws. Teeth. Tail. Swipe, swipe. You get the point. The devil just destroys them all. Oh, and then horns. Stick. Sticks the last dude with the horn. He had to use all of his weapons. But while he's up there, he's like finally like cleaning the blood. Oh no, he would love the blood. He's like rubbing more blood on him. He's rolling around in it like a pig in a slop pit. And he sees a beautiful woman somewhere. This is a legend. I'm not making this up. Why? Somebody did. As he's rolling around in the blood, he sees the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And he sees her, they lock eyes, and instantly fall in love with each other. Now, this is not the start of one of the most bizarre romantic comedies you've ever seen. It's the start of the story of a creature known as La Tunda. 
You see, the devil and this chick bang all the time, and she has a ton of kids, and one of them is named Latunda. Now, because she is the devil's child, she cannot have children herself. But she wants them more than anything. She wants kids, and she wants servants. So, the legend goes like this. that Well, that legend went like that. And in Colombia and parts of Latin America and South America, they believe that Latunda is this creature, this child of the devil, that if a kid sees her, it appears as a mother, it appears as an aunt, it appears as someone who cares about them. So if the child's mother was horrible and she had no sisters, the child would see nothing. It would just see like a predator, invisible type shape coming towards them. But anyways, if they had a loving mother, it would appear as their mother. And to adult men, which was her secondary target, it would just be the most beautiful woman they've ever seen. If you're an adult man and it's your mom, you might have some issues. But anyway, so, unless your mom is the most beautiful person you've ever seen, now that I think about it. Anyways, she captures you. Now, we did an episode recently on South American cryptids that become women, and I think there was one in Southeast Asia as well. And we're talking about all that stuff. This one I found when I was researching a different topic. And this one's absolutely bizarre. Because even though it fits the criteria of it lives in the wilderness, it's a shapeshifter, it can be the most beautiful woman ever, the other ones would either kill you or drive you mad. This one, this one's absolutely nuts. Whoever made this up was stoned out of their mind. Absolutely. So Latunda, she wants kids. And she wants slaves. She wants men to entertain her. And she wants kids to raise. Because she can't have any herself. So what she does is she lures you in by being someone who's cared for you if you were a child. Or the most beautiful woman in the world. But, first off, huge handicap here. She is an expert shapeshifter except for one thing. Her leg looks like a whisk. Her leg looks like a, 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 a sp- giant wooden spoon. Which basically is the same as saying you don't have camouflage at all. If you could morph into any shape, but your left arm looked like a blender, technically you can't morph into any shape. But apparently she always stands behind bushes, so you don't realize that her leg looks like a whisk. Like an egg beater, basically. It's like this old-fashioned wooden egg beater they use. But anyway, so she always has to hide behind a bush, which again, she can't chase you, and that's really not being an expert shapeshifter. Secondly, once she has you under her control, we'll get to that in a second, but once she has you under her control... She feeds you shrimp to keep you under her control. When have when has the mind control abilities of shrimp ever been extolled in any legend ever? I've never heard someone once say, you know, if she's not really, you know, giving you what you want, try shrimp. Like I that that is not a phrase that any human has ever uttered ever. But she uses shrimp to keep you under control. But you ask Jason, we know how she kidnaps you by imitating someone you love. But And we know how she keeps you under her control by feeding a shrimp. But how does she get us under her control in the first time? This is the best superpower ever. You go back to this chick's house. She's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. No, no, no. Even better. You're a little kid and this wo- your mom is like, hey, come into the jungle. Come in the jungle. And you notice she has an odd limp. But it's constantly obscured by jungle foliage, so you're not really like, you're like, that's weird. It kind of looks like an egg beater, but... And you go off into the jungle with this woman. She then gets you back to her lair and farts in your face. And her farts, I'm not making this up, her farts smell so bad, it breaks your mind and you immediately become her slave. How 
bad smelling does a fart have to be to destroy your consciousness? How how bad can that be? But apparently, it works for her. You're back at some chick's house. She's the hottest chick you've ever seen. You're a little concerned that her, the chick's house is in, the, in a cave in the middle of the jungle. And she's wearing knee-high boots. But you're there with her. She's super sexy. She bends over in your face. And then you're her slave forever. As long as she keeps feeding you shrimp. A lot of people believe that. And there may still be people who believe in this creature. But that is flat out ridiculous. There's a part in the Bible where this missionary is like getting picked on by these teens. And he prays to God and a bunch of bears come out of the forest and maul the teens to death. That story is more believable. And that, I mean, come on, that one's hanging by a thread. But that story is more believable than a farting ghost who feeds you shrimp. But somebody came up with it. So I, this is my scenario. A jock somehow tricked his way into becoming a shaman of a village. And just he was just pulling pranks the whole time. Basically, Van Wilder is the medicine man who came up with this story. A farting ghost. With farts that smell so bad, it destroys your mind. I can't imagine a smell that bad. But I, I want to see this cryptid on Supernatural. They do a lot of one-off Monster of the Week episodes. I want to see Sam and Dean fight this thing. I want to see Dean falling in love with this hot chick and Sam warning him, don't fall for it, you already banged that werewolf, we got in a lot of trouble with that. He ends up going back to this girl's flat, gets his face farted on, and then they both like, just shoot her in the brain, because that's pretty much how every episode ends, and then they spend the last 10 minutes talking about how much they love each other. I want to see Latunda on an episode of Supernatural. Make it happen. Eric Kripke, I know you listen to the show. Make it happen. Oh, wait, you don't work for that show anymore. Still, make it happen. But we're done with farts. We're done with the juvenile humor. You're, I, I, if I edited out a lot of fart noises and there's only like one or two in that, consider yourself lucky. But we're done with that. We're done with that part. Now we are going... We're actually staying in the region because our next story actually takes place in Latin America, South America, things like that. So we don't even have to use any fuel on the carpenter copter. We're just going to wait here for probably about 150, 200 years. We go into our cryogenic chambers. And we sleep the restful sleep until it's the year 1962. Imagine you're a college student, which actually a lot of you are. But imagine you're a college student in 1962. And you're curious about the world. You're looking at different political beliefs and things like that. You just kind of want to broaden your scope. I actually had a lot of run-ins with, um, who are those lunatics who follow um, Lyndon LaRouche? I had a bunch, oh man, I got a hundred stories about those. Actually, no, I have four. I have four stories about dealing with Lyndon LaRouche people at my college. These guys are nuts. But anyways, but again, you just kind of want to broaden your horizon. You want to look into different political beliefs. So a friend invites you to go to a seminar. He says there's this new political party. They, they broke off from the Trotskys. They are socialists to a degree that they see the future of humanity. And you're like, well, you know, Trotsky's okay, but I'll go check it out. I'll go check it out just to see what they have. You go into a large auditorium. Not a lot of people in there, maybe like 30 or 40, but everyone in there, you can tell the energy level is high. They cannot wait to hear what their speaker is about to say. And to be honest, you get a bit of a cult feeling Something seems off, but you put those feelings inside and say, you know what, I'm going to keep an open mind. A speaker comes to the stage, 
gets his papers ready, and begins speaking. We are preparing ourselves for a stage in which before the atomic war we shall struggle for power. During the atomic war we shall struggle for power. And we shall be in power. After destruction commences, the masses are going to emerge in all countries. In a short time, in a few hours. Capitalism cannot defend itself in an atomic war except by putting itself in caves and attempting to destroy all that it can. The masses, in contrast, are going to come out, will have to come out, because it is the only way to survive. The apparatus of capitalism, police, army, will not be able to resist. It'll be necessary to organize the workers' power immediately. Nuclear war equals revolutionary war. It'll damage humanity, but it will not. It cannot destroy the level of consciousness reached by it. Humanity will pass quickly through a nuclear war into a new human society. Socialism. (sighs) That's not just a guy breathing heavily in your ear. The crowd goes wild at this speech. And you quickly say goodbye to your friend, and you sneak out of that auditorium, and you basically run home. What you've just heard is a speech from Jay Posadas. Jay Posadas is the founder of a belief known as Posadism. Now, this story was recommended to me on YouTube from Addy Nathan, and I appreciate it. Thank you for the recommendation. Posadism was a political group in the 1960s. It's still around today. And they were so nutty that Castro himself kicked them out of Cuba. After the Cuban Revolution... Jay Posada said, wait, why do the Americans still have Guantanamo Bay? Let's mar-, and Which I've always thought was weird, too. I never knew Guantanamo Bay existed. And, I mean, it was common knowledge, but I didn't know it existed until after 9-11. But the fact that we had all these problems with Russia and Cuba and all that stuff, but we had a military base on the island, I always thought was weird. But Posada said, was basically saying Castro's not doing enough because there's still U.S. troops on the island. And Castro's like, listen, it's not worth it, da-da-da-da-da. And Posadas actually started to get groups of people from the cities to march on the base. And Castro's like, listen, no, like, this is the deal we have set up. And he he kicked Posadas out of Cuba. He was too much of a revolutionary for Castro. He ends up going to South America and Latin America, and he starts all these little cell. Originally, he was part of Trotsky groups, but they, he didn't feel they were going far enough. So he started forming this new political belief named after himself called Posadism. His beliefs were that nuclear war was not only inevitable, but good. The Soviet Union and China should strike first. The only way to defeat capitalism is through a global thermonuclear war. Now, his followers thought that was great, but his followers were never given the chance to rebut him. All the meetings were, he would go to the town hall meetings, and if he wasn't there personally, all the meetings were, were a group of people sitting around listening, listening to tape recordings of his speeches. His political newspapers were mostly transcripts of his political speeches. And people would just sit around and talk about what they learned. There was no leader but him. So it was basically a cult. A doomsday cult, really. He wanted nuclear war and had these visions of this nuclear war. And within hours of the nukes falling, all the workers would rise up and kill all the cops and stuff like that. Fairly short-sighted, because while that may happen in the short term, 
at the, even if you win, <laughs> the world is in the nuclear ruins. So he, lo- he gained a lot of followers from that, but he lost a lot of connections in the political world. Other groups didn't want to deal with him because he was too nutty. That was only the beginning, and so you had groups already severing ties with this group. But in Latin America and South America, it was fairly popular. I mean, in 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 compare, I mean, it's fairly popular compared to other offshoot communist socialist groups. He wasn't like top of the pops; like it wasn't this huge thing, but it, it had its good amount of membership. But anyway, so the nuclear thing they kept preaching, and they really do, they're they're not around as much today, but that's still part of their belief system, that nuclear war is revolutionary war. It is the final step. But around 1968, Posadis has another vision. He realizes that they actually have an ally that is an untapped resource. They actually have now looked around the globe and says, if we can get these people to take our side, we will win. There will be no defeating us. They didn't really look around the world. They looked up. In 1968, Jay Posadis wrote a pamphlet called Flying Saucers, The Process of Matter and Energy, Science, The Revolutionary and Working Class Struggle, and the Socialist Future of Mankind. It made four points. One, UFOs are evidence of the existence of extraterrestrial civilizations. Two, Since advances in society come from advances in technology, extraterrestrials must come from a more advanced society than Earth, like socialism. He had this belief that the reason why science wasn't as advanced as it should be is because capitalism used science to kill, socialism would use science to heal. He envisioned this world where everyone could talk to any animal, people could reproduce like amoebas, asexually, but I just love to imagine a person splitting in two and then having two of them come around. He believed that women should give birth in space. He believed in this idea called Russian uh, cosmicism, that once we left the planet, we would be these immortal people with no worries. And he believed that the aliens had already reached this level, and the only way they could have reached this level is because they were already socialists. He believed the reason why aliens, this was point three, the reason why aliens aren't interacting with us is because we are a primitive, i.e. capitalist society. And as long as we were a capitalist society worldwide, you know, there were obviously huge communist and socialist strongholds. But worldwide, you had this huge thing of capitalism in the Europe and in Western Europe and America. As long as that were there, the aliens weren't going to interact with us because we were seen as primitive. So four, it and this was kind of the main point, Posadists had to contact the aliens to get them to align with the socialists and destroy capitalism on the planet. Now what's funny is this, the nuclear war thing always struck a lot of other socialists as kind of weird, but they said... Yeah, I get where you're coming from. Like, yes, if there was a huge nuclear war or a limited nuclear war or whatever, it would destroy capitalism because capitalism needs material goods to sell and buy. You need um, groups of people to buy and sell those items. You need labor to make the items to sell and to buy and all that stuff. So yes, yes, you are right that if a nuclear war happened, it would impact capitalism more than it would impact communism or socialism. Yes, you're correct. However... It would involve the deaths of hundreds of millions of people and tons of land that wouldn't be able to be used. It would be a tragedy on a global scale, literally. 
It would be absolutely terrible. So yes, I, I see your point, but I don't think that's the path. I think we can do these other things. When he came out with this UFO thing, everybody laughed at him. To the point that like other immediately they were classified as a UFO cult. They became a huge joke in political circles. Other people, other socialists started referring to them not as Posadist or Fourth International. They just started calling the members extraterrestrials. Whenever they referred to this dude, Jay Posadis, or anyone in his group, they would call him, hey, look at the ETs over there. Completely destroyed their credibility. 100%. Posadis then realized that he had probably overstepped his bounds. He ended up getting exiled from South America at this point. He's in Europe now, where he eventually died in 1981. But they started talking less and less about weird... And the weird thing, too, is that when I was reading this article, they said, you would be reading the fourth international Posadis newspaper, and it would have an article about like a worker strike in Britain. And then next to it, it would say, when man talks to dolphins, world will be better. It was like all intermixed with like real events. And then this super fringe science stuff. But his followers still believed in it, but it rapidly started having drop off because people did not want to be connected with a UFO cult. They wanted to be socialists and they kind of believed this guy. But once they were basically getting mocked from their own side, you started to have membership drop off. To this day, they're remembered as a wacky UFO doomsday offshoot far, far left of socialism. And up until around 2011, they were still producing material. Their website's down now, but they stopped talking about UFOs. It was just completely damaged their brand. Nobody wanted to join. They were a big laughing stock. So they really backed away from that. But they still talked about, yeah, nuclear war is good. Because that, again, I, I can, that idea is logically, it's stupid, but you can see the logic in it. What's interesting about this conspiracy theory? Like, you have a guy, he has a ton of members, he has all these groups around the world. He had some in Europe too, but it was mostly located in South America, Central America. You have all of this power, and... He ends up making the mistake of talking about aliens in 1968 and becomes a big joke. And it's funny because nowadays you have cults, religious stuff, we'll talk about UFOs. It's a little more accepted now. But in 1968, that was his big misstep. But the thing is, he broke off from the Trotsky groups to start this sect, to start this political belief system. It's just as likely that he could have kept those views hidden not have argued, towed the party line, moved up through the ranks, get to the top or near the top, and begin to whisper those beliefs into somebody's ear. That's how you play the long game. You may be a weirdo in real life. You may have some bizarre political beliefs. But by starting your cult or your offshoot group, you're actually handicapping yourself. It's a much more beneficial to these fringe beliefs to work their way up through the system legitimately. And some people do. And what happens is over the years and over the decades as they move up these groups, their own fringe theories start to get dulled and they start to become a little more mainstream, a little more palatable. You get older, you have more experience, you're talking to people with different ideas. And you go, maybe the nuclear war thing's not a great idea. But to a hardcore believer... You're holding on to those beliefs the whole time you're working your way up that ladder. How many people are out there who believe the only way to win their ideological war is through nuclear war? 
You could have someone out there who believes that the path to the future means the nuking of a religious city, that the path to a glorious new future is biological weapon use across vast continents. You may have people out there like Posadas who believe that only a full-blown nuclear war can lead to the perfect world for the humans that are left. Jay Posadas died in 1981, but people with that type of mentality still live. And how many of them do you think are whispering in a general's ear on a daily basis? How many of them are generals themselves? How many of them are just waiting for the day to make their dream our reality? DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm so glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. 